Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Michelle Horde joins us today. She is a media executive, former vice president at NBC Universal, and founder of Gabrielle's Wings. Her new book is The Other Side of Yet, Finding Light in the Midst of Darkness. Welcome, Ms. Horde. Thank you so much for having me. First, uh, what is, just tell us before we get to the book, just tell us what is Gabrielle's Wings? What, uh, what does it do? Yes, uh, Gabrielle's Wings was created in my daughter's memory. Um, and the focus of the organization is to uh, do for children who look like my daughter. I lost my daughter when she was seven years old. Um, so how do we create um, stand in the gap for children of color in underserved communities um, from an educational and cultural standpoint. And that can look like things like what we call our Gabriel's Corners, which are on three continents currently and offer library resources, Wi-Fi resources, um, you know, computer resources. That can look like a partnership we have with the YMCA of Greater Seattle where we are giving scholarships to black and brown children uh, for swim safety because we know the why is at the top of that game. And we also know that black and brown children drown four times as, as much as their Caucasian counterparts in the elementary school. So during those crucial elementary years, Gabrielle's Wings looks for, we look for those gaps and hopefully can stand in it for kids so they have a chance. Is there a quick website address that we could give to pass along to, to listeners? Yes, it's gabriellewing.org. Okay. Gabri <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> it's, it's not a quick one, but uh, <laughs> gabriellewings.org. Thank you. Uh, okay, well, let, let's, to the book now, uh, why, don't, why don't we quickly recap, if you will, the background of this book, what happened, which is implicit throughout the book, although most of the book really is about something else besides the, the actual events. Yes. So the book is divided into before, yet, and after as three separate uh, components. And the before really starts early in my career when I'm a producer at America's Most Wanted, um, covering missing child stories, um, and tells a bit about my background and then about my marriage um, and giving birth to my beautiful daughter, Gabrielle. Um, I was a woman who'd been told she'd have a difficult time conceiving. And so Gabrielle literally felt like a miracle baby at 39 and was the joy of my life. 
Um, and couples sometimes do. Several years into my marriage, I realized that it probably made sense to um, split ways. Most prominent for me was at the time Gabrielle was seven, and I wanted to ensure that I wasn't, you know, do as I say, not as I do. I wanted to make sure I was setting an example for her about what a woman should expect out of a partner. So I asked my then husband for a divorce after several very tumultuous months. Um, and for anyone that's gone through a divorce, it's amazing how it literally can transform something that you thought you knew um, in a relationship. Uh, I wound up moving out of the house um, at some point because I just did not want my daughter to see the friction. And so she would go back and forth between our homes. And several months later, when my uh, husband finally agreed to sign the divorce papers, the next day he murdered our seven-year-old little girl, our only child. And so that is the horrific background and the before of my story. Okay. You make much of this yet in the title, which is a conjunction, but is quite distinct from and, or, or but. What is this powerful meaning of yet in, in, in your book? Yes, well, it began with, as I literally was driven away from the crime scene um, where I, I lost my daughter, um, as someone who grew up in the church, in my head instantly, Job came. And I remember getting on my phone to Google it because I wanted to make sure I had it right. And it's Job 13, 15, uh, the first part, though he slay me yet, will I trust him? So that's where it began. And frankly, it was a bit of a battle cry. It was, I don't know what's happening. I can't understand what's happening, but I'm going to hold on. And as time went on, as I continued to write and journal, um, obviously at the time, for me and my own reflection, I certainly was not thinking about a book, yet evolved for me. And I started to see it as a pivot, that so many of us have these moments in our lives. So, you know, you have a before, whether it's before divorce, before cancer, before COVID, um, where your known past is in the past, and you have the opportunity then to pivot and say, yet. And it connects that unknown path, that known past. So it connects that known past with an unknown future. And so, you know, you have to accept the before that you can't change and that's behind you. And you can say, yet I will be successful, yet I can still find love, yet I will somehow heal after this tragedy. And so the book really focuses on how to get to that yet and even move past it into a next phase of your life after a traumatic or difficult or grief inflection point. You know, it, it's almost, uh, it almost sounds providential, or at least remarkable, that you began your journalism career at this unusual place, America's Most Wanted, uh, which did, in, in some of the cases that you report in, in the book, uh, involve involved children, children in danger or, or, or gone. How did you, how do you land there? How do you begin at America's Most Wanted? 
Well, it was it was very much by chance. I, I went to Howard University. I lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, at the time, I wasn't you know, ready to cut that college umbilical cord and venture outside of, of D.C. And it really boiled down to the first full-time job that was available and local. And at some point, mom and dad were supportive, but were like, listen, kids, you need a job with benefits. So that, that's how I landed there. And, and there's so many things in life wind up being. It wound up being a fantastic um, learning ground for me to learn compassion, to learn empathy, um, and to really be plunged into the worst possible moments in people's lives and to see the beauty in how people gather around them, to see the beauty in how people can be resilient and have resolve and continue to walk and talk and, and um, somehow function after something horrific happens. So, it, you know, by 22, 23, I'm traveling around the country to cover these missing child stories. And because John Walsh was our host, who really, you know, more than anything was associated with the loss of his own child um, through a kidnapping, people saw us almost like a nonprofit. It wasn't like the press was showing up. It was like someone was showing up who could help them, who understood what they were going to. So we really were let into the homes and the families, and it gave me a very close behind-the-scenes view um, of what that experience was like. And ironically, I'll never forget my boss saying to me, who was several years older, listen, kid, it's a good thing you're still single and don't have kids because otherwise your job would be impossible. Hmm. So was John Walsh, he, he was based in Washington, D.C.? Yes, it- yes. The show is based in Washington, D.C. It's a Fox affiliate there. Okay. Okay. And you, uh, you did some, I mean, not only good journalism work, but you did some good human work. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I mean the, 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 some of the tales you tell of your time there in the book are gripping, uh, actually. Uh, and uh, you were able to combine, right? I mean, this is the ideal, right, in, in a way of, of, of journalism, where... You, you're going after the facts, you're doing the investigation, and actually, in, in some cases, really, people's lives really <laughs> were, were fixed by what you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking to date myself really pre-internet, obviously pre-social media. So the call, the call to action of a public uh, to be involved and to be citizen journalists, if you will, um, in helping not just report the story, but helping to solve something looked entirely different, right, in the early 90s than, than it certainly would now. Um, and you're absolutely right. For me um, and for all of us that worked there, as I discovered, this wasn't just a job. It was a calling. You know, we, we back then had our sky pagers. And, you know, regardless of where I was, if that pager went off, I, I had to get to work because a, a child's life may literally you know, be in the balance. And we would quickly get a public service announcement on all of our Fox affiliates, um, knowing that the first 24 to 48 hours were really our, our, our only window in most cases to finding these children. Um, and unfortunately, most of the time we didn't. But just the urgency and knowing how important your work was uh, certainly made it feel important and, and that it had integrity. You know, one of the things that you observe in, in that experience, and then as a, a theme that pops up later on in your experience, is the observations you make over how other people respond to another's 
catastrophe. You know, neighbors or, or acquaintances, friends, co-workers, uh, uh, even more distant family members. What, what do you see in, in the way people sort of approach someone who has undergone catastrophe? They, they want to do something nice. They want to understand, or, or, but they're, they're often not sure what they want to do. There's a lot of difficulty there, isn't there? It's very complicated. And I think one of my favorite lines in literature is from The Blue Aside by Toni Morrison. And she says, people love the way they are. And I think people grieve the way they are, observe the way they are, right? So for some people, it's about them. They make things about themselves. For some people, it, it can be about superficial gossip, or they just want to be in the room where it happens, regardless of what happened. But fortunately, what it means for most people is that they want to somehow help. And in situations that seem unimaginable, in situations where people say things like, there are no words, or, you know, this doesn't happen here, people just want to do anything to feel like they're helping. They know that they ultimately cannot change something this horrific or devastating as what these parents went through when I worked at America's Most Wanted and frankly what I went through. But complete strangers are willing to stand up and, um, you know, bake a, bake a pie or stand guard or go out into the woods in the middle of the night and search just to try to be a part of a solution. You mentioned uh, the book of Job a few minutes ago, and you have, you have several pages about the book of Job, a meaningful, a meaningful text for you. You, you say uh, in the same area that you do not resent God, you're not angry at God for, for what happened. What, what enabled you to keep those quite natural feelings at bay? You know, I think I, I lost my mother when I was 24. Uh, suddenly she had a, a cerebral aneurysm and she was 50 and perfectly healthy. And at the time her mother was dying of cancer. So I think it's a combination of things. I think having an, a semi-early, in my early 20s, sudden loss that was of that significance um, was one piece. I think the other piece is if I were to say, why me? Why anyone, right? Like who would I bestow this horrific nightmare upon? Um, no one, not, not an enemy, not a friend, not a stranger. So for me to say, why me suggests that I somehow am above the reproach of, of you know, of, of, of horrible things happening. Um, a favorite expression that I have uh, adopted from my now husband, I'm grateful to be remarried, is that, you know, good things happen for a reason and bad things just happen. Um, so the assignment of everything in the universe happening for some divine providence, I don't buy into as much as I buy into that things that were meant for evil can be used for good. And that's what I held on to. It was immediately clear to me as I was saying that verse over and over in my head, not that I thought I was Job, but that I understood that just as I believed there was good in the universe, that there was evil in the universe, that this clearly was that because the person I had married and known for so many years, while I had chosen to get a divorce, it was not for any domestic violence or, or personal physical threat reasons. It was simply a matter of the marriage no longer worked. So for this to happen felt to me as if 
it was supposed to take me out. It was supposed to kill me, kill my spirit, maybe literally physically harm me. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen. I was not going to dishonor my daughter's beautiful life by disintegrating. And so I became obstinate and defiant in my faith that instead of, you know, worrying about why me, it was what now? And, and how do I pivot and how do I ensure her memory was more than what happened to her? And how did God want to use this dark, horrible thing that I did not believe was God, but use it for good? In, in the process of grief, you bring up that concept of the Overton window. How do you, how do you apply that here? You know, I think the, um, without getting too heady or wonky, um, I think the, the, the best way to describe it is, you know, that, that frame of what is possible shifting and changing. Um, initially, the Overton window was used to describe that in politics and what was and wasn't acceptable. I think from a large scale where we all understand it is COVID, right? In February of 2020, what was possible in our lives um, what was possible in terms of being shut in and masks and jobs where you never would be able to work from home, that window shifted. And, and sometimes that can be for good, but a lot of times what it does when you shift to a space that is unimaginable is it's threatening because you say, if this can happen, what else can happen, right? So there was this collective and perhaps still fear of, gosh, before March 2020, this COVID thing was not possible. If it is possible now, what else is possible? And that's where I think faith and fear really grapple. Certainly for me personally, my daughter, not only losing my daughter, but losing her the way I lost her was unimaginable until the moment I got that horrific phone call. So it did leave this space, um, this gap that my faith really had to fill in um, of fear of, oh my gosh, if this, if this is true, what else can happen to me? And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that who've been through something traumatic. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You speak also about the importance of writing in the in the aftermath as, as the months pass. Why was writing so, why, why is writing so important? I can speak for myself and it may be something different for different people. You know, for me, it's a way to go inside, to talk to myself. It's meditative. I've written my whole life. Um, for someone else, it may be running. You know, I have friends where running is their ministry, you know, where they, they go out and run five, 10, 15 miles. So for me, putting something to paper makes it real, um, allows me to get it out of my body and to have a conversation with myself. It's usually been for me my whole life. It has not been something that I've shared widely with others. Um, but what I found as my therapist encouraged me to try to share some of my journal entries and poems, 
um, with close friends to just give them a window into where I was, was that people were encouraged by it. That what I felt was dark and, you know, ugly and, and, and painful in other people's eyes showed a reflection of, of hope and of faith and of fortitude and resilience. And so as time went on, I started to see that while all I saw were holes in my heart, people saw the light that was coming through. And so that perhaps this writing wasn't just for me and my healing, that perhaps I was supposed to do something else with it. And that became the beginning of this book. And, and this, there's the subtitle, right? Finding Light in the Midst of Darkness. Now, yes. but, but, but the, you also tell people, you call yourself a warrior, and later you urge readers in, in one in one section title declare a defiant faith. What is a defiant faith? How, how, how would you describe that? I think it's very easy to be um, a person of faith on the holiest of holy days in your best year with your family around and whatever lovely rituals of your religion. Those are those are easy days to relish in what you call your faith. To me, faith is most powerful when it's despite, not because of. You know, I can certainly say I'm a woman of faith because I was raised in the church, because I believe in the principles of Christianity. To say I'm a woman of faith despite the fact that I lost my mother in my 20s, despite the fact that my seven-year-old little girl was cruelly taken from this world is a much more powerful testimony. And so when I talk about being a warrior, it's because I truly believe that there is spiritual warfare that we battle within ourselves and that we battle, you know, in the universe. And so warfare requires warriors. And, you know, when you're fighting against whatever you hear talking at you in the media and social media and just whatever surrounds you, you have to find a way to go inward and put on that armor and be clear about who you are and what you are and what you stand for without, you know, people liking it or sharing it or retweeting it, um, that what you truly know. Um, and so that's why Warrior became so important to me. Did, did you get some of that warrior spirit from your mother, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say that my mother was a um, walk softly and carry a big, carry a big stick type of warrior, <laughs> um, which is of probably both her generation and her upbringing in the Midwest. Um, I'm probably a little more braveheart uh, in my, the way I show up than my mom was, but for sure, I come from a lineage of um, black women who had to stand strong in the face of adversity. My mother's mother was famous for saying, make your scars your stars. So I grew up with this understanding that life would not be easy and that I would be expected to rise to the occasion. That is a, a wisdom. <laughs> we should spread that far and wide. Young people, young people in America today with your cell phones. Listen, life is not easy. And yeah. if it, if, just because it isn't easy, that's not, that's not you know, the, the wrong. What, what is the wrong approach? Actually, I'll ask you. What is the wrong approach to someone that, that someone takes 
upon the recognition, you know, life isn't easy. Life isn't a bowl of cherries. Uh, how, what is the way that that person should respond? I think the response is, yes, life is not easy. Life is not fair. Yet life can be beautiful. Let, yet life can offer wonderful love and relationships and laughter. So to me, you know, you only see that bright, bright prick of light in the darkness. And so without the valleys that none of us like, um, sometimes they're deeper and seemingly more impossible than others. Those peaks just aren't the same. And so um, I'm married to a Bahamian um, and we're now in the States in the Northeast. And I've said to him, you know, as much as I love that gorgeous weather and it is my happy place, there is something powerful about four seasons because my appreciation and now his appreciation for a sunny 65, 70 degree day in April is completely different when you know what it's like to have a foot of snow and it'd be 10 degrees, right? So there's something about that perspective that we gain when life is not completely horizontal, completely linear, um, that allows us to reflect and see where we've come from and also really join hands with others. Um, you know, I think one of the things, and, and I won't go off too far into social media bashing land, but I think one of the unfortunate things that the alleged togetherness of social media has done is really isolated us into these, these avatars or characters of brightness, right? No one posts, I had a crappy day today. <laughs> or, you know, I put my husband on the couch last night or my kid is grounded because they stole some booze, right? We put our Easter beautiful pictures in our finery and my job promotion. And, and so it gives a very one-dimensional, unrealistic view of what life is really all about. And so one of the things that I've tried to do, and, it, and it's hard and brave to do, is put the other stuff out there. I, I didn't enjoy writing about my before. I didn't enjoy sharing these dark things. But I feel like if you understand the hell, the hallelujah is that much louder as we would say in the Baptist church. And so, no, life is not fair. And because of that, you can have perspective and the topography of life can be appreciated for its bumps and smooth places. You, you know, you mentioned that the isolation of this, you know, fake community of, of online, you know, you know social, social media. You also highlight the importance of solitude, which is, which is, you regard as sort of a, a, a powerful, important, replenishing thing, some solitude, correct? Yes. Yes. And, you know, I listen, I, two things. One, I have an incredible village that I write about as well of friends and college friends and classmates and, and work friends that have held me up. And at the same time, there are those moments in life where you really need to go inside, where you can't ask the neighbor, you can't ask the internet, um, what should I do next? What am I really trying to do? Where you have to have that quiet time to look in the mirror and look at that person and answer to them only. Um, and I think that as we're defining what's next and being honest with ourselves, even if you can't be honest with anyone else, you have to be honest with yourself. Um, and I certainly believe sometimes that requires 
um, a little self-isolation. Um, and that may sound lonely, but I think that if, if you're not able to be by yourself, then that tells you something as well. So whether you call it meditation, prayer, a hike, um, shutting the door for a couple of hours, being able to have that alone time to really be in touch with who you are without all of the outside distractions and chaos is really important sometimes. Yes. You know, you, you mentioned, well, while we hear words about, about community and, and, and village and, but I, I have to say I'm, I'm drawn to a different, a different metaphor that you have. You tell people, find your army. Yes. <laughs> and that goes, with, that goes with the warrior side, right? Who's That's the exactly army? Right. What, what, what does the army do? You know, village is very soft and nice and lovely. Um, and on good days, a village is wonderful. When you are facing battles, um, and for me, literal trials, um, it took me two years, even after my ex-husband's arrest, to even be granted a divorce. Um, two years to get to a criminal trial. I really needed other warriors. Um, I needed people who were really willing to stand by my side, um, to flank me, some who were going to get in front of me and take incoming on my behalf, um, who were brave enough to face things that, frankly, I, I shouldn't and didn't have to face. Um, and so for me, the Army is about people who are willing to go to bat for you um, and be there for you, whatever that means. And that isn't always your bestie from childhood. Um, sometimes some of the most beautiful relationships come from unknown places. I talk a bit in the book about one of the other class moms who I knew through, you know, assigning who was going to bring the water in the fruit boxes to school um, but who I would certainly not have called a friend who really was there for me and still is for me to this day because of her life experiences that afforded her the ability to be vulnerable and to step into my place of vulnerability in a way that, frankly, some of my closer friends who were fellow moms were not able to do. And so I think finding your army is all about, yes, it's, it's wonderful to have friends. It's wonderful to have community. It's paramount. And there are times in life where you need a certain type of friend partner that isn't the pity partner, who isn't the woe is me, misery loves company partner, but who is willing to say, come on, we have to get up. We have to keep going. Or is willing to say, you stay here, breathe. I'm going to go ahead. And, and check things out and do what I can to smooth the path for you. And that certainly is what my army has done for me. You have another image in, in the book, somewhat parallel to that, uh, when you urge people to understand their trials on the model of Exodus, the Exodus story, right at the point where the, the, you're, there, you're there at the shores of the Red Sea, the sea has, maybe hasn't quite parted yet, and you know Pharaoh's army, it is on the way. That that's the moment yeah. where you act. I wasn't asking a question. I just wanted to let, lay that out. But let me ask one one final question here. Uh, you say you talk at the end that it is important for people to realize that finding a little joy, uh, gaining a, a new love following such a disaster, is not a betrayal. Is that, is that hard for a lot of people to do? 
It was certainly hard for me. You know, I think understanding that you will carry certain pain and grief with you, that you find a way to grow around it. You don't leave it behind. There isn't a neat closure at the end of checking off the, you know, several stages of grief. But accepting that, one, there may be things in life where there's never an explanation, where you never really understand why. And two, there's some things you have to take with you. You don't have a choice, but you can hold on to them and hold on to other things as well. You can spread your fingers and pull in love and pull in joy. And that is a choice. I think sometimes, especially when you've had something happen to you, it feels like you're a victim and that other people have made choices for your life. And that may be true, yet you still have choices to make. You, as long as you are breathing, there are choices to make. You can choose happiness. You can choose to try. You can choose to laugh. And so I, I hope to empower people to find that resilience, to continue to choose, even when some doors have been shut to them, keep looking for that next door. The book is The Other Side of Yet, Finding Light in the Midst of Darkness. Michelle Horde, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.